Welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Now, today we're turning our attention to Hollywood. My guest is a renowned screenwriting teacher. Jacob Kruger has worked with thousands of writers, from Academy and Tony Award winners to beginning writers picking up the pen for the first time. He is a Writers Guild of America, Paul Selvin, award-winning screenwriter. He's a playwright, producer, and director. And he and his teaching team train writers across the globe from his studio in New York City. So, uh, Jacob, thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me, Steve. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We first um, crossed paths in a a place in Nashville at a film festival a couple of years ago. And uh, I remember sitting in a, uh, watching a panel, and you were on the panel, I thought, this guy gets it. Like, this guy has got the inside scoop on story. And so I'm really thrilled to be able to um, pick your brain a little bit here today. Yeehaw, let's get rocking. <laughs> well, I noticed uh, that recently you were in China teaching screenwriting. And one of the things I was curious about is, um, from your perspective, are there universal storytelling principles that work you know, around the globe in different cultures, or, or is it important for us, like if we're writing for a different country or culture, to understand, um, I guess, storytelling principles from their perspective? Well, China was so interesting for me uh, because it's a culture that's so completely different than ours. Um, and and also they're working within restrictions that are different from ours. So I was oh, yeah. doing a master class there um, that was put together by the Beijing Film Festival. And so we had incredible people. We had some of the biggest actors in China, some of the biggest uh, Hong Kong and China directors. There was a guy who showed up with his whole writing staff. So it was a very exciting group group, and they spoke no English at all. Oh, um, And I actually, uh, I, I actually wrote a newsletter about it because, I, I, you know, about translation and the idea that, that you know, a, as writers, we're always working on translation. We're always, um, there's this thing, this perfect thing in your mind, and then there is the story that you're actually able to get onto the page, and the, the two never actually match up. Um, but what we're doing in revision after revision after revision is we're trying to get that idea, that perfect idea from our dreams or our visions or, or our instincts onto the page in a way that other people can understand. And so to, to bring it back to the, the question that you started with, where I, I kind of start from more of a Jungian point of view, which is I believe that what's personal is universal. And I believe that... My, if I start off and I'm thinking about them, um, I'm, going to be, I'm going to be scared. I'm going to be afraid of being judged. My inner sensor is going to be telling me that I'm not good enough. Um, and instead what you want to do is exactly what I did when I was speaking to those Chinese students through a translator, is you go inside and you go, what's true for me? Hmm. What do I know is true? What did I see? What did I hear? What did I feel? Uh, who are the characters that live inside of me? Like, what's the piece of me that's, that needs to get out right now? And first you focus on getting your own truth on the page. And then I believe there's a second step where you then want to go, okay, now that I know what the truth is, 
how do I present it? So in, in China, it was very difficult. Usually my classes are very improvisational. There's a lot of workshopping uh, oh, where yeah. I'll get an idea from a student and then someone will try a scene and we'll talk about the scene and we'll grow the lecture out of that. And I learned very quickly in China that that wasn't going to work because by the time we got it translated, we'd lose an hour of the class. And so, <laughs> you know, so I'm still, we're still presenting the same idea, but we presented it in a different way. We used more clips. We used more examples from existing films. So it's, it's the same concept. When you start with truth, you, you, you don't have to wonder about what you're trying to say. You just have to wor- wor- wonder about, like, what's the best plate to serve it upon. Hmm, nice. Yeah, and I like the emphasis that you have on the specificity of the truth or the true moment that you're trying to get across. Um, I've often, in my seminars, brought that up, that the more specific you are, very often the more universal it becomes. So let's say you're writing about forgiveness, or uh, not necessarily about forgiveness, but one of the themes, let's say, is forgiveness. Well, it's so broad and amorphous that people won't, you know, maybe identify with it. But if you're talking about, let's say, forgiving someone who has bullied you in high school, well, all of a sudden everybody can be like, oh, okay, well, I can identify with that. Yeah, I... Specificity. I 100% agree with that. You know, there's this idea um, that I think a lot of writers get confused by, which is, like, write what you know. And that's always given as, like, common wisdom, that yeah. you should write what you know. Um, and But I, I don't think that, you know, if that was the case, like, J.R.R. Tolkien would never have been able to, uh, would never have been able to write Lord of the Rings. Um, because, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien never met an orc or a hobbit or had to throw a ring into, you know, into a river of fire. That's right, yeah. Um, But I think what we do instead is we use fiction to tell the truth Um, because a lot of us, or almost all of us, you know, we, we actually very rarely find that specificity even in our own lives. Like, I'm standing in my office right now, but I realize most of the time I don't actually see the little details of my office. I just see office. Right. I see like the generalization of office. Whereas if I can, if I can actually take a moment to sit and look, I'll notice like something that I haven't seen for a long time, which is I have two empty jars sitting on my desk that are back from the time when I used to always have nuts in here to eat if I got <laughs> hungry that I didn't even remember were there. And so I think part of the process of being a writer is learning to actually look closely and listen closely, not to all those voices that are clamoring for your attention outside, but for, for the one inside your head. Yeah. And then, then once you know what that is, that's when you start going to the voices outside for training so that you can learn how to shape it and how to structure it and how to build it. But you, yeah. you've got to start by noticing that crazy thing on your desk. Yeah, I, um, I was trying to think. There was a Japanese film writer, or excuse me, filmmaker, who had a quote about an artist must always look at the world with both eyes open or something along those lines. And it's, it mirrors what you're saying right now is that we have to notice, we have to be aware and then start to take that in and translate it back out. And it is a process. I mean, it's not easy. And I think a lot of people start with writing. Maybe it's a novel or a short story or a screenplay and they start thinking, oh, well, you know, this can be, this is easy. But 
to really do it well, it's super hard. Yeah, it's super hard and it's super easy both at the same time. But the problem is you can't control when it's going to be easy and when it's going to be hard. There you go, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think I really like what you're saying. I, I, like, I, I like that quote, an artist must always look at the world with both eyes open. Um, and, you know, I, I've been privileged in my life not just to get to be a writer but also to get to be a teacher. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that you realize is that um, we have been taught not to look, hmm. um, and we have been taught not to express ourselves honestly. Um, you know, I, I actually remember the teacher in my life. There was a teacher named Mrs. Reese, who was my second grade teacher, and I remember her shaking my friend Seth Fishman up and down by his arm, screaming, "Think before you speak!" Uh, <laughs> wow. And of course, Seth, uh, uh, Mrs. Reese should have thought before she abused a second grader. But I remember as a child thinking, oh my God, what a concept, right? Like, think before you speak. This is really going to help me. And, you know, if you think uh, back to your childhood, you know, it was hard to think before you spoke. Yeah. It was hard not to see things honestly. It was hard not to say, if, if your mom asked you how she looked in that dress, not to say, oh, it makes you look fat, exactly. right? It, we, the, the gap between us and our inner sensor was so broad. And then what happens is as you get older, that gap narrows and narrows and narrows and narrows. And we actually start to identify with the sensor where, where we don't even realize that we're not seeing and hearing and feeling clearly. Uh, we don't even realize that we're not actually in touch with that intuitive voice. We actually think we are the sensor, or oftentimes that feeling is uh, you, you get that blank, you know, I don't have a single idea, my mind is completely blank. Yeah. Um, and that's actually your sensor just cutting in on your creativity. And so a, a big part of what we do here at the studio is to say, okay, before we, before we can start to to teach you how to build a plot or a structure, we've got to learn, teach you how to get past that inner sensor so that mm. you can actually get back to your authentic voice. And then we can teach you how to shape that voice into something that you can use. Yeah, I love that. That's, that's great. You know, uh, sometimes in storytelling seminars that I've done, I'll do this little, you know, kind of an improv storytelling game where it's called Fortunately, Unfortunately. And you'll start a story and you'll say, and then unfortunately, and and you take an, uh, any suggestion from the audience of something bad that might happen, and then you go on, and you say, but fortunately, something good from the audience. And so if you do it with children, um, as soon as you say, but unfortunately, something bad happened, what happened? And, you know, half the kids have their hands up in the air immediately, right away, to tell you, an alien landed, or the toilet blew up, or whatever it is that they come up with. <laughs> yes. And then, but if you do that activity with adults, you'll say, unfortunately, and I look around, and it's like crickets. You know, they don't want to raise their hand. They don't want to, because they're afraid. I think it's a similar thing to what you're talking about. Their inner critic, well, what if it's stupid? What if I'm, you know, it's not a good enough idea? And so they sit there and think and think and think, but then it's too late. Yes. And, you know, fortunately, like, you know, you're in the world of novel writing. And fortunately, in the world of novel writing, at least most of the people teaching novel writing are actually novelists. Mm. Um, you know, same in playwriting. You know, most of the people teaching playwriting are actually playwriting. But I come from this crazy world of screenwriting where most of the people teaching screenwriting are not actually screenwriters. Huh. And yeah. 
you, you end up with a lot of the teaching and a lot of the books that are written about screenwriting are written by critics. And you end up with the, the, this, this process where all the teaching happens um, towards like the conscious mind. Um, and that stuff is valuable, but what ends up happening is if you teach the conscious mind without equally teaching the subconscious mind, um, what ends up happening is the conscious mind ends up just smothering that conscious mind into submission, and you end up inflaming the inner sensor rather than, than winding it back. And so, you know, that's one of the ways, like, if you're listening to this, if, if you're wondering if your teacher is good, you know, if your teacher is telling you what to do, you know that you're with the wrong teacher. Um, but if your teacher is helping you find that thing that you didn't know, like even in that simple little exercise that you talked about, allowing that, that answer to come out of you and allowing you to get in touch with your impulse rather than trying to do it right. Yeah. And then if your teacher's giving you some shape to that, that's when you know you're working with somebody who's actually helping you. Now, in the world of screenwriting, um, I've... I've, I'm a little familiar with it, although I haven't written a screenplay, but I've, I've, writ, I've read a number of books on it, and it seems as if people are really caught up on this three-act structure. Yes. And a lot of novelists are, too, and, and a lot of books on plot and structure and so on, but what's your take on the, this whole idea of the beginning, the middle, and an end, the three acts? Um, how do you approach that? Well, when I was first starting off a, as a writer, I did the same thing that everybody else did, which was I bought Sid Field's book, Screenplay, because back in those days, that was the only book. Yeah. And, um, and I started using three-act structure, just like everybody else. And what happened to me, just like everybody else, was that I got lost in the second act. Hmm. And that's... There's even, I mean, that's, if you ask any professional writer who's using 3X structure, how's it going right now, they're going to say, ah, I'm, I'm lost in the second act. And, and I think that's a product of 3X structure. The other problem that I have with 3X structure, I had actually started as a playwright. Um, I was mentored by a brilliant playwright named Peter Parnell, who, who really taught me how to be a writer and, and quite frankly, how to be a teacher. Um, and, you know, when I wrote a play, people would come up to me after my play and they would be weeping as they told me how beautiful it was or laughing as they told yeah. me how funny it was. When I started writing screenplays and I started following all these three-act structure rules and trying to do it the way I was told, um, what ended up happening was um, people would come up to me and they'd still praise me, but the praise would be like, oh, it really flowed, you know? Oh, what an interesting project. And I knew I was screwed because I, was, <laughs> I wasn't creating an emotional impact anymore. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I started to think, okay, well, in Peter's, when Peter was mentoring me, he never talked about any of that stuff. You know, what, what he talked about was a very intuitive approach. So I went back to screenwriting, and I tried to do what Peter taught me, and, and that actually didn't work either. Um, and the reason that didn't work was that a play only has a couple of moving parts. It has unity of place, so everything's happening on the same stage, and you can really dig down deeply and have these nice long scenes. So yeah. you don't have a lot of moving parts. Whereas in a movie, the, the uh, power of a movie is the power of the cut. And that means that you're going to have a ton of short little scenes. And if you don't have some kind of infrastructure to build around, um, you're going to get lost. Um, and so eventually what I figured out 
for myself was a, a, a new structure called seven act structure, um, which is, is, is not a formula. Like, you know, I'm not the only person who says there aren't three acts, you know, like right. save the cat says four acts. Hero's journey says 21 steps. So Shakespeare wrote five acts. Um, but the idea of seven act structure was to give me an approach, a way of thinking about structure. Yeah. Um, that put my focus on character rather than, um, than plot, that put my focus on, on the structure of the character's journey and the character's change rather than on the external formulas uh, based on other movies. Yeah. Um, and, and also that allowed me to break down the, the movements of the character's journeys into smaller chunks so that I could really understand the choices the characters were making without getting lost in this big 60-page second act. Uh, now, I know that you have courses on this, and we want our listeners to check out your courses at your, at your website, but can you give us a taste of maybe a couple of the, um, the aspects of these seven steps or the seven acts that a story Absolutely. goes through? Yeah. I'm, I'm a big believer of give it away. I, I, <laughs> like to give, I like to give people as much as I can, and I feel like when the time is right, if you help people, they come back to you. So... Um, the way I look at it, the, the, the problem with three-act structure for me is there, there are three basic problems. The first problem is beginning, middle, and end only exist for the, uh, for the audience. They don't exist for the character. So for you right now, like th- we're on uh, uh, this wonderful call together. We don't actually know, is this the beginning of a long friendship is this the middle? We've met a couple times before. Um, is this the end? Am I going to say the wrong thing and it's over? Um, <laughs> we, we don't actually know beginning, middle, and end. The, the only person who knows beginning, middle, and end is the audience. And so if you think in terms of beginning, middle, and end, what happens is your, your structure gets abstracted from your character, and, it gets, and you start focusing on the audience. And when that happens, two things happen. Number one, you start judging yourself because you're afraid the audience isn't going to get you because we're, we're all afraid of that or isn't going to think you're good enough or isn't going to think you're funny enough or isn't yeah. going to, you know, you're, you're going to have a million judgments in your head and your inner sensor is going to get inflamed. But the other thing that's going to happen is you're great at living life, or you're terrible at living life, but either way, you live life all the time. You do it every day, and you've been doing it every day since you've been alive. Um, most of us, unless we're total psychopaths, most of us are actually very bad at manipulating other people. Um, most of us are very bad at, at puppeting characters through plots for, to create an emotional experience for an audience. We're just, we're just not that good at lying. Mm-hmm. And so when you start to think about how am I going to give an audience an experience, instead of playing to the skills you've developed since you were a child, uh, which is finding a way to authentically be you, um, you're, you're trying to dance for the audience in a way that's going to please them. And, and what ends up happening is kind of the equivalent of, you know, when you're on a date with someone, you, your first date with someone you really think is hot, and suddenly you're, like, not acting like yourself. Right, yeah. The, the exact same thing happens when you start thinking about that audience. You, you stop acting like yourself on the page. Mm. Um, 
and then the, 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 the next issue with 3x structure is um, the 30-60-90. Um, uh, I'm sorry, the 30-60-30 is how they break down. 30-page beginning, 60-page middle, 30-page denouement. Um, that's going out of favor, first off. The 30-page the denouement, we just don't see it a lot in Hollywood anymore. Yeah. Um, but, but we see more like seven pages now. Um, but the, the bigger issue is that 60-page horrible middle, which is that nobody's smart enough to keep 60 pages in their head all at one time. So uh, what ends up happening is you, uh, you, you start in the middle, and, and you forget where you were going, and you lose track of what's happening, and you start making random subplots to to, to fill it. And so what mo- the structure of most screenplays is like awesome beginning, crappy, meandering middle, awesome <laughs> ending. <laughs> and so, I think I've seen that movie more than once. More than once. We see it all the time. And the problem is like if you're a huge writer, like if your last name is, is Sorkin, well, he doesn't do that. But if you're, if you're a famous <laughs> writer, and there are famous writers who get away with this, people will read through your crappy middle because they know the great end is coming. If you're M. Night Shyamalan, people will read through your crappy middle because they know <laughs> your great trick ending is coming. Um, but if you're a normal human being who walks the earth, the moment they hit that messed up middle, they're done. And so yeah. you've lost them. Um, so, so the second problem is the problem of the middle. Um, uh, but the, the third problem is much more profound. Uh, the, the third problem is that, um, that instead of putting our focus on structure, it puts our focus on plot. Um, so to explain that, I'm going to have to tell you the difference between plot and structure very quickly. Sure. Um, Structure is the choices you make in relation to the shit that happens in your life. Whereas plot is the shit that happens to happen in your life. (laughs) So why is this important? Well, I'll tell you a story. Um, I used to, to, at the the beginning of the studio, we we shared a space with a lovely photographer named Arthur Cohen. This is, we have half a floor in Manhattan now, but back in the day we were small. And... um, we, so we shared this space, and we taught screenwriting classes at, at night, and, and Arthur took photos during the day, and it was a wonderful, wonderful relationship. And what happened was Arthur got sick. Um, he was diagnosed with ALS, and within three months, he had lost his motor skills. He lost his ability, most of his ability to speak, um, and within nine months, he was dead. Oh, boy. And incredibly sad story, right? Except that Arthur, the plot of his life, the the shit that happened to happen was he got ALS. But the choices that Arthur made were incredibly compelling, which is Arthur, I remember he had just been diagnosed and his voice was already faltering and he came in one day and he's like, so happy. And I'm like, what's happening? And I'm thinking he must have gotten like a better diagnosis or something. Yeah. And he's like, my daughter got an internship. Isn't that amazing? And he had like this little slur to his voice. And it was the most, it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. Um, and, you know, uh, Arthur founded an organization called Pickles, P-I-C-K-A-L-S, raised about a half a million dollars for, for ALS research. Wow. Um, and that organization is still running even after his death. So 
this is a guy who this shit happened, but you can see the structure that he built and how beautiful that story is. Whereas you've got a friend who like got a hangnail and it ruined their day. Yeah. And, and that structure too, the shit that happened is the hangnail and the structure is the choices the character is making. And so the, the last problem with 3X structure is that instead of putting the focus on the structure, which is what, first off, what you're better at understanding from your own life experience, but also what the audience is actually going to connect with in your movie, is the structure, is the choices the characters make. The 3X structure instead puts your focus on plot. Um, the stuff that happens to happen. And what ends up happening is if you don't have the structure underneath the plot, the plot is boring no matter what you do. And, and then you're, you've you know, blown up a house and you've killed a dog and you've thrown $10 million into the Hudson River and you, you send your script to somebody and the producer says, yeah, you know, it just felt a little low stakes. And you think that, you know, you must have to blow something else up or your plot's not right. But what's really wrong is your structure is they're not feeling the import of the choices the characters make. And they're not feeling the way that those choices are changing the character. I think um, that, yeah, that's yeah. great. So that's what we're trying to solve. Um, and the idea of, the, of seven act structure is twofold. Uh, number one, we were using seven-act structure in order to put the, the writer back in touch with their authentic voice of the character, uh, of the, their, their, authentic, their authentic voice as a writer, the authentic voice of the character, the choices the character is making in relation to the plot, the journey they're going to go on in relation to the theme. So we're, we're abstracting it down and we're giving the character movement. So we're... 3X structure is going to basically give you two and a quarter steps to get a character through a huge change. We're breaking it down into seven bigger steps or or seven smaller steps so that you can build the infrastructure to actually get yourself there. Um, The second piece of that is is a little less intuitive and a little more complicated. And that is because because Hollywood is innately careful – if your movie doesn't look like three-act structure, <laughs> it ain't going to sell. And so yeah. the second more complicated thing that we're doing is we're, we're actually building the movie in a way that anybody who is reading it is going to think it's three-act structure, which is how I built my career. Um, but we're giving ourselves the internal infrastructure necessary to actually, to actually deliver that product that can sell. Yeah, you got to play the game, you know. I've, I've coached people some on their pitches, and people will give you their pitch, and they, they start off, well, my story's got two protagonists. And I'll say, well, it might, but when you're pitching it to an agent or editor uh, or producer, don't start with that. Yeah. <laughs> because so many of them will believe, all right, look, a story is about one character, and I tend to believe that, you know, myself. I think theoretically it's possible it can have you know, two equal protagonists, but I've never, never exactly seen it happen. So it's like, I'm like, okay, choose one, whoever sacrifices the most, let that person be the one that you tell your pitch about and then go for it. Yeah. And, you know, and my belief is I, I agree that you have to play the game, but I think that a lot of people play the game too early. Ah, yeah. And, 
you, you, the chances are, especially early in your career, you, you know, eventually you're going to have a huge, powerful agent who's going to whisper in your ear exactly what people are buying. But I- until you have that person, even the information that you have, by the time you have it, it's already two years old. By the time it's in the Hollywood Reporter, it's already a year old. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think that people play the game too early. I think um, you you don't want to sell out until you have something to sell. You know, uh, it, yeah. when. When, when, when Apple built the iPhone, right, uh, or the iPod, they didn't go, okay, well, what are people buying? They said, well, what should an iPod be? Mm. And then they found the right way to pitch it, and they pitched it different ways to different people. Um, and so if you have two main characters, that's great. If you know you're pitching to somebody who's going to need one main character, then, then you might want to amplify one of those characters. Um, yeah. But don't don't uh, compromise your script. You know, think about a movie like Little Miss Sunshine or The Departed or Dead Poets Society. You know, what would have happened if somebody told that person, those writers, to you know, you can't have multiple main characters too early. Yeah. But if I needed to pitch Dead Poets Society, and if I happen to know, you know, some people might be looking for more than one main character, depending on what just made a lot of money in the box office. Sure. Um, but if I was going to pitch Dead Poets Society, um, I could easily pitch Dead Poets Society just focusing on Neil. Or I could easily pitch Dead Poets Society just focusing on Todd. Or I could easily pitch it just focusing on the, the, Peter, the Peter Keating character, the Robin yeah. Williams character. And I could pitch it different ways for different people and then allow them to be pleasantly surprised when they find that I've actually done more than I promised. I like it. Yeah, that's great. Well, um, you know, that, I, like, I love the approach of taking, you know, the seven steps and saying, okay, we're going to look at the incremental change in this character. Now, do you believe that characters inherently change? Uh, Among story theorists, there's sort of this debate that stories are there to change characters or stories are there to reveal characters. What's your your take on that? Well, I don't necessarily believe either. Um, So uh, stories are there to reveal character. I think that's the most dangerous one. Um, because when, as soon as you're thinking about revealing, you're thinking about the audience. And as soon as you're thinking about the audience, you stop being authentically yourself and you start trying to manip- manipulate them, and then the audience feels it and you lose that authentic connection to your character. So, so that one I know I strongly disagree with. The, um, the idea that, that stories exist to change characters, I believe there's fundamental truth to that, even though I don't think it's always that way. Um, I think there's fundamental truth to that because I think the one thing that every human being shares is the desire to change. Um, I think every single one of us wants to change. It doesn't matter what you have. You win an Academy Award, and the next day you want more. Um, So I think that we all want to change, and so building movies around change makes sense both emotionally and commercially um, because it taps into one of those primal impulses that we all have. Um, We also all have changed. So when you write, and we've all struggled with change. So when you write from that that place of change, you're also tapping into your own experience. Uh, Or even if we've failed to change, we've longed to change. (laughs) So 
Uh, and I think if you go to a, a movie theater and you go see a movie uh, at random, eight out of ten times it's going to be a change movie. Um, that said, in, in novel writing it's a little bit different, um, and in poetry it's a little bit different, um, but, but in the novels that people tend to, to want to adapt into film or into television, they tend to be built around change. Um, there is like a 20% uh, of movies that are not about change. Um, there, there's a kind of movie that I call a test movie. Um, an example of a test movie is Indiana Jones. It, uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark is, is a test movie. Indiana Jones doesn't change. She just gets tested. Um, Pan's Labyrinth is a test movie. Um, the little girl in Pan's Labyrinth, she doesn't actually lose her purity. She just gets tested. So what happens in a test movie is uh, the, the character is put structurally in opportunities to make choices where almost anybody else would compromise their integrity. Hmm, I like um, that. And this character, and, and it could be negative too, uh, uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm is a test television show. He is never going to do the decent thing. He is never going to do the intelligent thing. He is always going to do the most neurotic, maladjusted thing in relation to any plot element that you drop into his life. Um, so, so there is a, a place for test movies. They're a little bit harder to build. Um, and then there's like that 1% that I call like emotional symbolic structures. Um, you know, if you see a movie like uh, Where the Wild Things Are or parts of the Tree of Life, the Tree of Life uh, is partly, um, partly a, an emotional symbolic structure and it's partly a, a change movie and it's partly a test movie. Yeah. Uh, it's a very complicated structure. So, and there are, you know, or you could look at uh, Matthew Barney's work, which is also film and, and which is really more about visual images that relate to each other or a movie like Baraka that does that. So there are, there are a million different structures. And I think the important thing for people to understand is, yes, most movies are about change and most movies are about the choices the characters make. But really... All the structural tools that we use, all the structural approaches that we use, really have to just grow out of serving the needs of this individual project. So um, there is no like uber structure that any structure that any project can fit into. Um, even the hero's journey that so many people are using, if you go online, you'll see, you know, a hundred people arguing about whether, you know, uh, Yoda is a threshold guardian or, or a spiritual <laughs> father, you know. So, so no movies really follow these structures. What happens instead is that, that you look at the film and then you, you look at what you're building, you look at your intentions, you look at your theme, you look at the unexpected things that reveal themselves as you write and as you test the edges of what this movie or this, this TV series or, or this story might be. And then you look at it and you come to an understanding of what's already working. And then you use all these tools of craft and structure to address the places that aren't working yet in order to serve up this script in a way that other people can understand. Yeah, that's one thing in, in your newsletters, which I've been reading for the last few years. I've liked how you emphasize that idea that as we approach a creative project, an artistic project, that we don't necessarily approach it knowing 
maybe the theme or even the change or something like that, but that as we explore it, those aspects of the story, if we're attentive, become more clear to us. And I think a lot of people go about it the exact opposite way. Yes. You know, all of our education system has been built, you know, based on the Henry Ford model. You know, we're building, our educational systems are built to develop people who are happy just to attach the same widget all day, every day for their whole lives. Um, so, you know, our, our, our educational systems are not built to encourage creative thought, you know, art, artistic uh, expression, rebellion, you know, all these things that make us artists. Um, and so in a strange way, this is the same things that are really valuable uh, in your everyday life are exactly the things that get in, in your way as, as an artist. And so um, I, I, can you remind me what your question was? Because I actually want to get back to your question. Oh, <laughs> I was just saying that um, I've liked how you um, address this idea that you need to be attentive and you don't always know exactly yes, where, yes. you know, a story will go or maybe the theme or something like that. But that it, the, um, the process of writing is almost like a process of digging into it and eventually discovering some of those things. And Yes, that's where yeah. I was going. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, we, we, we've been trained to try to want to control everything with our conscious mind. Um, when the truth is the conscious mind controls like 0.2% of what we actually do. Um, you know, most, uh, you know, neurologists think the conscious mind can hold like somewhere between five and seven things at one time. Right. Whereas the subconscious mind is making sure that your heart is beating, you know, you're walking while you're eating, while you're chatting on your cell phone, while you're navigating traffic, and while you're thinking about the conversation you're going to have later. That's all happening and all controlled by your subconscious. Hmm. And uh, unfortunately, because, because our education hasn't caught up to this, um, all, the, all the education goes to that conscious mind, and we want to control it. We want to be like, no, I'm going to go through this door. I'm going to build this outline. I'm going to take this structure. And when we do that, if you happen, if you happen to have incredible craft, which is going to take you a lifetime to build, and no matter how good you get, there's always someone who's better than you. Um, if you have incredible craft, sometimes you can fake it that way, but it's still the hardest way to go. Whereas uh, there's actually a line from The Zero Effect, uh, which I love. It's an update on the Sherlock Holmes movie. And the Sherlock Holmes character says, uh, most detectives, when they're looking for something, um, they try to find one thing. And that's crazy because out of all the things in the world, uh, you're only looking for one of them. He says, when I try to solve a mystery, I start off by looking for anything. Yeah. Because out of all the things in the world, you're guaranteed to find something. <laughs> And I love that quote, and I think that really describes the process of being a writer, which is we have to let go of some of the control. You have to build the skills so, you can, so that you can, can shape them. You don't want to just let your subconscious run wild and never, never shape it into a form that other people can appreciate. But you want to start off by going, like, let's take whatever door is open to me. And sometimes that's a log line, sometimes that's an idea, sometimes that's a visual image, a character, a line, a question you don't know the answer to, uh, you know, somebody from your past who hurt you, um, your dream for what your relationship could be. It could be anything. 
you want to start with whatever the screenwriting gods are kind enough to give you. And then you want to say, okay, what do I need to build from here? And so that, that rather than trying to use the tools to shape the process, you want to, to use the tools to serve the process that you happen to be in on this script with this character at this moment. You know, uh, when you were saying that, it reminded me of this saying from Africa that something happens and then a story comes along and finds it. <laughs> I love and, that. Yeah, and so something has happened in your life, and you have this memory, all those things you just listed. One of those happened, and it's almost like the story has found you now. What is, you know, explore it and find out what it is um, that, that has captured you in that way. Yeah. Um, as a connoisseur of film, like, I, you don't come across as a critic at all, but just a guy who loves great stories. Um, what is it that draws you in to a movie or maybe a television show? Uh, I'm sure there are a thousand you know, different things, but what are a, one or two of the, um, the things that really make your jaw drop when you're entering this cinematic world of someone's story? It's funny, when I, uh, when I was younger, my family used to hate to go to movies with me. They'd always say, you ruin it. Every movie we see, you ruin it. <laughs> and, um, but as I got older and more experienced as a writer, I actually changed the way I went to see movies. Um, and actually, this is what um, – I have a free podcast, the Write Your Screenplay podcast. Um, and this is what that podcast is about, is when I go to see movies now, I, I don't – try to judge them. I actually don't look at them saying, like, are they good or bad? Did I like it or hate it? Yeah. What I actually think is most valuable for screenwriters is to go to any movie or read any book or comic book or poem or music or whatever, and instead of criticizing it and pulling it apart, which honestly we can do so easily, we've been trained for it since birth. Oh, yeah. Instead to say, okay, what can I learn from it? Um, if, if this was my piece, let's say it's something that I absolutely, my first instinct is to go, I hate this. What a yeah. lousy script. Um, if instead I can go, okay, forget that it's a lousy script. That's easy. That's exactly the same thing I'm going to say to myself when I see my own first draft. <laughs> let's just pretend this is just a draft that was shot too early. Hmm. Um, what's beautiful in this totally broken thing? You know, what could be built on? If this was my own script, how could I develop it into something beautiful? What, if I throw away all the stuff I don't like, what are the elements that I do like? Or what could I learn from it? Or what's a trick that they did well? And when you start to watch movies or life in that way, a couple of things happen. The first thing is you have a, a much better time both at the movies and in your life because <laughs> you, you get absorbed by the wonder of the world instead of by the frustration uh, of the world. And, and, and you, start to, you start to actually think creatively all the time. Um, but the other thing that starts to happen is, is you get inspiration everywhere and you get really good at finding the beauty in things and that's really the biggest challenge that we all have as writers is is it's so hard to identify the beauty in our own work um you know some of us some some writers over identify they think everything they write is beautiful and, yeah. and, and that's not good either that's just not looking honestly but but most of us beat the crap out of ourselves all the time 
and and that shuts down our creativity just like you know you would never if you met the writer of that movie you hate you would never say the things to to them that you say to your friend on the way out <laughs> right cuz it would devastate them um but we say exactly those things to ourselves yeah um and then we wonder why we have writer's block or why no one wants to buy our film and so you know my the way i like to see movies now is um you know picasso said he spent his first four years of his career trying to paint like rembrandt and the second half of his life trying to paint like a child Hmm. and the way I go to see movies now is a lot more like that. I want to go into a movie like a child, looking for the beauty, um, and then I want to bring my conscious mind to it and go, okay, how could I build around that beauty? How would I rewrite the script? How could I change this to make it what it, what it wanted to be? That's fabulous because I, I know for myself I've become critical at times of others' writing, whether it's a movie or a novel, or, or a novel. And uh, I think changing that perspective is, is, is a great lesson and it's a great reminder. And I like how you emphasize not just in film, but in all of life, looking for those moments of what to be thankful for. We spend too much time ripping down others and ripping down ourselves, too. That's yes. a good reminder as well. I get so many calls from students saying, hey, will you just read my script and just tell me if I have talent? Hmm. And I always say to the students, like, no, I won't, because I don't really care. Um, I don't re- really care if you have talent or not. I will take the student who's willing to work hard yeah. over the student for whom it comes easily any day. Um, because, you know, my belief is that talent is really just the ability to write like yourself, the, mm. just the ability to take off your mask. And everything else is just craft. And so, you know, it's, it's my belief that, like, if you really want to be a writer, because so many people are going to tell you you don't have talent, if you really want to be a writer, you, you kind of have to decide, hey, are you, the real, real question you want to ask is, are you willing to do this even if you don't have talent? And if the answer is yes, then you should pursue writing with everything you've got. Yeah. And if the answer is no, then... You should go find something that you want that bad that you would pursue it even if you didn't have talent. Uh, I always like to think of Bob Dylan. <laughs> like, imagine if someone said, you know, hey, Bob, like, you know, you're a nice guy and all, but you, you just you can't sing, you know, maybe become a <laughs> painter or something, right? You know, he was willing to do it whether he had the talent or not. Um, but what's great about a Bob Dylan song is not his voice. What's great about a Bob Dylan song is that there is no mask whatsoever, mm-hmm. that it is just it is him in the most pure, unadulterated way. And then there's a tremendous amount of craft applied to him uh, in order to shape it into a song that other people can connect to. That, authentic, uh, that authenticity that you mentioned even earlier, the idea of finding your own voice, man, uh, that's, that's so true in both novels and singing and, and film writing, screenwriting. Um, how, what are other tools besides just perseverance that can help us to really uncover our own authentic voice? I suppose listening more to that subconscious, but um, yeah. how do well, you encourage, yeah? Here, here's what's hard. Um, we, when we are, um, 
there are really only two schools of screenwriting. Um, there is like the artist's way, which is a beautiful way of thinking about art, um, you know, and the, and the books that are like it, Catching the Big Fish, what I talk about when I talk about running. These are the books mostly written by real writers that are about like the creative process and getting in touch with your voice. And like these are the best books on the market. Um, but the problem is, and, and they, will, they will give you a better life and they will make you a better artist without a doubt. Focusing, if you said forget craft, forget commercial needs, forget everything, forget producers, forget coverage readers and contests and Academy Awards and all that, and you just focused on developing your voice. Um, and by the way, that's not easy. Like, you need help for that. You need to read great books. You need people who push you in that way, you know, because the, our inner sensors are so strong. A lot of people think, oh, I'll just let it flow. But until you have someone who can keep on pushing you to look closer, look closer, look closer, no, you're not actually looking, until you find that person who can push you in that way, um, it's really hard to know when we're connected or when we're not. So if you were going to make a mistake, <laughs> the mistake to make is just focus on your voice because you're going to have a great life, a great experience, and you have a much better chance of writing something beautiful. Um, that said, especially in my business, you know, in the film and television world, um, and, you know, we do have a lot of novel students as well and memoirists and short story writers. Um, we have some really wonderful people on staff who specialize in, in on, on the, the novel and, and prose side of things. Um, but particularly in screenwriting and more, more than ever in those fields as well, um, if, if, if publishers and producers don't see the payoff, then it doesn't matter how good your voice is. You know, we've actually seen a huge shift in novel writing. Um, we're get, getting more novel writing, writers and memoirists than ever because they've realized that, that when they send their stuff to a publisher, the publisher isn't just looking at it as a novel. They're looking at it to see can it be adapted uh, into a film or TV project yeah. because there's no money on the novel side of things unless you happen to really strike it big. Um, but the, there's a lot of money on the, on the adaptation side of things. So you've seen even... Uh, major writers like Cormac McCarthy, who started off as like really dense poetic literary, uh, literature, um, you know, he write, starts writing these short books that are structured more like films, like No Country for Old Men, um, and that's actually you know great authors going like, hey, I can still have my voice and put it into a form that that can lead me to the kind of success I want. Yeah. Um, and in screenwriting, it's even more so because you're, unless you are independently wealthy or like Brad Pitt is your godfather or something, <laughs> you know, you're going to need to convince someone to give you 10000 or or 100000 or a million or $10 million or $100 million, like a lot of money. And so, so if you're not thinking about them, too, if you're not taking care of them, then <laughs> really you're just a mooch, you know? And so... My belief is you got to start with the creative side. You have to start with learning what it really is, and you have to start by pushing there. And, and what we try to do here um, is, is to build both sides at the same time. So you push for truth, you push for truth, and then you teach the specific tools you need in order to shape that truth. 
and then you push on that until those skills become innate and intuitive. Um, and then you go back and you look for more truth and you look to push it deeper. And then you're going to have more pages. So you're going to start to learn some structural ideas and how to tie those pieces together. And so it, you can almost think of it like what you really want to do is a dance between these two parts of your mind where you have equal pressure on each and where you're getting education that helps you build that equal pressure um, on both sides. Now, that's, that's great, and that, it's a good transition, too, because I wanted you to talk a little bit more about your studio and the courses that you guys offer and, um, and how people can get either signed up to take one of your classes in New York City or maybe online somewhere else around the world. Yes, yeah, so, so here's my belief is I got great mentorship in college, and then I got the worst, most awful, destructive mentorship for the rest of my life. <laughs> and I was lucky, and I succeeded, honestly, in spite of it. Um, but my goal when I created the studio was to create the kind of mentorship for others that I wish that I had had myself. Um, and so that's why the podcast is free and will always be free. I do two a month um, because even if you don't have a penny, I want you to be able to get this information. Um, and you can find that on my web website, writeyourscreenplay.com slash podcast. Um, but we're also really strongly committed to affordable classes um, and we actually never left a student behind over price. So um, we, we do a really good job. Just, so just as an example, um, my Write Your Screenplay class, which you can take here in New York City or live online from anywhere in the world, um, we have the whole room is mic'd for sound, and we have three cameras, So, uh, and you can fully participate and ask questions, and I can see your face, and you can see mine. Um, that class costs $375, and if you can't afford $375, we will do a payment plan for you. Um, if you're a TV writer, you can study with Jerry Perzigian. He is an Emmy award-winning television writer. He was a showrunner on uh, Married with Children, The Jeffersons, The Golden Girls. You know, he's one of the greats of all time. Uh, you can study with him in a 10-week class for 1200 bucks. So... We are, and, and those classes are really cool. They're very small. They're, they're, they're run just like real writer's rooms. Um, and if you don't have that much money, that's fine, too. We'll break it up for you into a payment plan so that you can afford it. And then the, the biggest thing that we do, I really hate grad schools. Um, I hate grad schools because I see too many wonderful artists coming out of them with $300,000 of debt. Uh, yeah, no and problem. how in the world are you supposed to be an artist with $300,000 of debt? I, I also see a lot of people being taught by PhDs rather than being taught by real writers. And the worst part is you graduate with all those de that debt, and now you're actually in the industry trying to survive, and that's when you need mentorship the most, and that, <laughs> that's when you can't get the mentorship anymore. And so my answer to that is a program called ProTrack, um, and it's our one-on-one -on -one mentorship program. And the idea is to give students who are really serious about this lifelong mentorship that they can do with no debt and that doesn't require them to leave their job. 
um, that they can actually fit into their real world life. Um, so the way that works, just to give you, you can study with me, we have 11 teachers um, uh, in our faculty, uh, but just to give you an example, uh, people spend $60,000 a year to study with Steve Moulton at Columbia University. Um, you can study with him one-on-one -on -one every week or every other week, meeting with you, reading every page you write for $350 a session. So, you know, the way we work is basically to, to allow students to get lifelong mentorship. We've had students who started with me or started with Steve or Linda or Jerry or any of the other wonderful teachers here. We started as beginning writers and, you know, now, you know, for example, we have a student who's writing a mind hunter, you know, and when we first started, we were giving her feedback about, you know, what's the character and now we're giving her feedback about, about, you know, what do you do when the network and the, and your, and the other writers and the head writer want different things. Yeah, so wow. um, the, the goal of what we're trying to do is to provide the real education from real writers that can help people actually build the careers that they want. I think that approach makes so much sense, and, um, and I do encourage people to definitely check it out. And the best website to check out is at um, writeyourscreenplay.com. Yep. So if, um, if you're a writer and uh, this is something that might be interested in, for sure check out the podcasts or jump on the newsletter and uh, definitely go to the website and see if, um, see if one of these classes or courses is good, it's good for you. So, so, Jacob, what parting thoughts or words of advice do you have for someone who wants to either break into the business or at least uncover that authentic voice that you've talked so much about? So, parting words, don't sell out until you have something to sell. Hmm. Once yeah, you have like something it. to sell and once there's money on the table, then you can start thinking about how can I serve my producer without losing my voice. But the thing about Hollywood, and I'm sure the thing about, um, about the, the literature and, and, and nonfiction world as well, is that the tastes change every day. It's like high school. A fad comes in and a fad comes out. And if by the time you've written the piece that can catch up with today's fad, that fad is over. So if you start today and you're writing a single character journey because people only want that, by the time you're done, people are only going to want ensemble pieces. Hmm. You can never time the market. You have to start with what's authentic in yourself. You have to start with a project you'd be willing to write even if you knew you were never going to sell it, even if it was, even if it was a completely impossible. You have to want it that bad. And that's the project that is most likely to actually break you into this business. I think that's great, you know, advice for storytellers of all bents. So, Jacob, thanks so much for, for being on the show. I really in, enjoyed it, took notes myself as you were talking, and, uh, <laughs> and so I look forward to continuing to, um, to keep up with what you're, what you're doing and teaching around the world. All right. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Uh, so my website is stephenjames.net. And, of course, we have our character conference coming up at the end of October, the premier conference on characterization. It's called characterconference.com in Atlanta, and you can check that out. For more info about our other guests and to check out other broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com. Thanks to Suspense Radio for hosting us. And always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time. <laughs>